Warning, there's violence and cursing of a graphic nature in this here episode. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 149. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. You know, we haven't had a good old-fashioned ghost story featured on the podcast in quite some time. And I'm sure at some point we will, but not this week. This week, it's all about the quasi-ghost story. But first, a drabble. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. They're fun. Try writing one yourself. Send it into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. Maybe we'll run it on the show. This week's Drabble is called Smoking Robots by Lawrence Simon. Lawrence is a 30-something-year-old technical support drone for the web hosting division of a local ISP. He lives in Houston, Texas with his wife and three cats. In the urban paradise they call home, he gardens, grills, bakes excellent bread in his bread machine, and slowly dips further into insanity. He also runs the 100 Word Stories podcast, and you know you want to go check that out. That's at podcasting.isfullofcrap.com. You'll find it in our show notes. Early robots would get trapped in ethics loops. Ask them a question or give them a command that caused an unresolvable conflict, and the robot would halt, take on an odd expression, and their circuits would heat up. If you didn't purchase an auto-restart or a sufficient cooling system for your robot, you'd have a meltdown. The late poet Ruby compared the smoke to a soul escaping from the body, wisping into eternity. They're expensive repairs, but that damn ruby kept intentionally blowing the robot CPUs. Why? She liked inhaling those robot souls. Good for a cheap, albeit toxic, buzz. Yeah, man, I'm totally digging on that vibe. Hey, let me get some of that robot over here, man. Oh, Moloch, whose eyes are a thousand blind windows and whose name is the mind. Saintly motorcyclists, man. Carl Solomon, I am with you in Rockland. Oh, man, we are so beat. Our feature story this week is called So You're Going to Die by Robert Reed. Robert is a Hugo Award-winning science fiction author with over 140 published stories. His work regularly appears in Asimov's Fantasy and Science Fiction and Sci Fiction. And he won last year's Drabblecast People's Choice Award with his fantastic story, Floating Over Time. That was back in October of 2008, episode 83, if you want to go back and take a listen. So, without further ado, So You're Going to Die by Robert Reed. So you're going to die. So what? I'm not even a little curious why. Reasons are never that interesting to me. Disease, age, or that God gave me a sign bullshit. I don't care why you've come to me. And that should be a warning. I'm a nut and bolt, pragmatic to the bloody end type of guy. Life and death shouldn't be complicated. 
and I don't care what you pay me. I'm not your priest, and I sure as hell not your therapist. Priests like forgiving sins, and I don't believe in the crime. Therapists are paid to make idiots feel good about their fate and their prospects, and <laughs> that's not my game. What you're buying from me are tested, reliable strategies that'll help you get where you want to be. You want an afterlife worth living? Believe you me, I'm your goddamn angel of death. So how's a man get this line of work? Fair question. Ten, twelve years ago, I had this client. He'd filed for a divorce, but his wife was crazy rich, and he decided it'd be better if she died instead. So he hired me. That's what I used to do for my living. A good living. And this is a funny story. The wife lived in this big, ugly house. Should have been haunted, looking as it did. Besides her robots and overpriced security system, she was all alone. At two in the morning, I showed up, cut past her security, let myself in through her bedroom window. I'm big, but sneaky. She was a lump of sagging skin and gray hair snoring, and I stood over her, making ready. Then I saw thick cables running out from under the bed, and I wondered if I missed something. I got low and found what looked like a big television laid flat on the floor. A ghost box, yeah. I'd seen them on news sites, but never touched one. It was a second generation model. To work, you and your box had to be beside each other when you died. The box had to catch you with its super-cooled gizmos. Everything you were was set inside those weird little null zones, in storage, and the box protected you and fed you a diet of thermal energies. Under the best conditions, those second-generation boxes worked maybe once in five tries. Maybe. And they cost a half million dollars, plus maintenance. Which was a pretty good measure of how much this lady did not want to go quietly into that shitty night. I don't believe in ghosts, by the way. Not in the, uh, soul and spirit fashion, no. But I know the boxes, and I know the theories behind them. The human brain is a machine, a fancy machine, with quantum functions. Quantum means tiny. It means that tiny things, like electrons and memories, have no set place and no clear destination. The two of us might be sitting here watching our coffee cool, but we're also stretched out over an infinite number of nearly identical realities. And inside any instant, there's that tiny but real chance that one of us is going to die. When the end comes, our brains quit. There's no doubt about that. But the mind, it's not just here and now. That sounds all spiritual to hear, but it's not. This is science talking. The energy and personality of a person can get stuck before it evaporates from our world. Wood is a fair dumping ground, something about its pore size and how cellulose vibrates. A person can get himself pasted inside the wall or the floorboards. The body and brain quit, but the rest of the bastard lingers on. 
And that's the weird quantum trickery that for thousands of years people have called a ghost. Those old ghost boxes were clumsy gloves, one chance in five, awful odds. But I'd seen enough news reports to know that people were running studies, playing with statistics. Experts were claiming that if a person died under stress, particularly miserable, screaming, struggling to survive stress, the odds of success went way, way up. So there I was, standing beside that ghost box, and that's when I decided to try my hand at science. The old woman liked wearing pantyhose. I found a clean pair and pulled them over my face. Then I woke her. Boo, I said, and shook her. And she sat up in bed and tried to scream, but I plugged her mouth with a second pair of hose and pushed her down and tied her up against the headboard with a third pair. Then I made a few threats. That's all. I promised her all flavors of misery, and she peed in her sheets. And figuring she was as scared as she could be, I shot her in the head, nice and neat. Nothing changed at first, but then the ghost box gave a hum. One red light going out while the big green bulb next to it came on. And because the room was dark, and because ghost boxes are designed to feed thermal energies to the dead, she was able to appear beside me. Not as an old woman anymore, but looking like a 30-year-old, and just about as beautiful as any girl I'd ever seen. Structured plasma. That's what they are, though I don't know exactly what that is. Her body and the out-of-date clothes looked out of focus, but the throat and the mouth were real enough to whisper, Thank you. I'd never had a victim chat with me afterwards. I needed a minute to sit on her bed, thinking. She started dancing. This is wonderful, she was saying. This is amazing. You freed me from that meat trap. Bless you. Bless you, sir. And that's when the idea hit me. <laughs> Normally I'm not a creative guy, but these were special circumstances. I was thinking about rich people who might want to be released from their old bodies and comfortable middle-class citizens who might pay their life savings to cheat death. This was a career opportunity. Around the world, laws were changing about euthanasia and ghost boxes getting cheaper and better every year. Here was my chance to make big money, upfront and honest. Of course, this wasn't a legal kill. She didn't sign any contract, and my deal was with her ex, so I finished the job. As soon as she saw what I was doing, she turned into one of those old-style screaming ghosts, threatening to haunt me for eternity, but it was just noise. I finished the job ten different ways, breaking up that ghost box. She wailed and cried and shoved her icy hands inside my skin, but I destroyed enough null space cavities to dissolve her integrity and she melted away. And then I set the house on fire, just in case a little bit of her had slipped into the floorboards, too. I don't name names, so when I handed myself over to the FBI, I didn't mention her. What mattered was clearing my name, drowning the half-dozen guys who were usually my clients. 
you know, the real bad hombres. And that's how I got off with three years in solitary and then a full pardon. And that's why when you look at me like you are now, you see somebody who understands death just a little better than his competition. Now I'm going to warn you, as required by law, 100% success is not possible. The industry standard is six times out of ten, but as of this morning, 80% of my clients get snatched up by their ghost box and buried inside null zones they can trust. Standardization, that's the key. The trick is putting people in a place that's awful but not too awful. Painful but not the kind of pain where you just hope to die. In my early days, I'd make my deal and break into the client's house in the night, reenacting my first success. But there are too many variables. And besides, climbing through windows is crap. That's why I leased this building. I wanted a place that looks clean, like an office where good doctors do good work. And once you hire me, if you hire me, I'll vanish. You'll see my staff instead. I've got people that might be nurses. They smile and show you to your room and punch you full of holes, insert medical equipment that's going to register your heart and blood chemistry and brain waves and God knows what else. I've got smart people who know how to read a body's suffering. I've got crafty people who make good money terrorizing my clients. Making the needles jump, we call it. My people are better at this work than I could ever be. But when it comes to the final act, nothing happens unless I say it happens, and I'm the only one who does it. And if you ever see me again, at least in this life, you'll know it's your time. My advice is to hire whoever you want to hire. It's your decision. There's big companies and little butcher shops on the corner, and maybe you'll get science and sound medicine. But sign my contract, and I'll bring to your case nearly 400 efficient and very professional murders. 350 killings were legal, and most of the rest were forgiven. Forgiven by this smart young judge who sat up on high like God and listened to the FBI, and then he listened to me, and with a smug shake of his head he signed all the paperwork. Which brings me to another story. I never went into witness protection. That bullshit's not for me. I did my time and set up my business, and a couple years later, the same judge came hunting for me. He didn't look so young or in control anymore. Right away, he started yelling at me about the boutique cancer that was killing him. I told him I didn't care. He reminded me about our shared past and what he gave me, expecting some kind of special deal. I told him what my rates were, no room for negotiations. And the judge started talking about his family, yabbering on about how he wanted to leave his kids with money, and he loved his wife so much and couldn't leave her poor, and judges didn't make nearly as much as people thought. And that's when I suggested that maybe, just maybe, he didn't want what I was offering. Being dead wasn't the same as being alive. I warned him of that. I explained that what you became was a picture of your whole life, memories and dreams, like a giant wild photograph that you inhabit. With eternity stretching out ahead of you, you could relive your son's fifth birthday or your best sex with the old lady. Whatever made you happy. 
and you could interact with nearby ghosts too, which could be interesting sometimes. But I warned him that the living could be a problem. He wouldn't seem real to his kids and his grieving, freshly impoverished widow, and regardless what he did with his afterlife, they were going to go on with their own lives, growing up, growing old, forgetting him in little pieces, and all that while he'd be sitting in the cold null zones, pretty much trapped. I was nothing but honest with the judge, except he thought I was playing a game. Maybe he thought I was already terrorizing him, laying the groundwork for the killing. Whatever his thinking, he accepted my terms and surrendered most of his savings, and he died on schedule. And neither of his kids is going to college because that selfish piece of shit decided he wanted to be a picture that nobody wants to look at. Which brings me to another service that I offer here. Are you going to prosper as a null zone spirit? Are you absolutely sure? Because for an affordable fee, I can let my psych staff jump you through some ethereal hoops. We'll see if you're self-absorbed enough to handle forever. And if you're not, I've even got a therapist to recommend. Yeah, one of those chatty bastards who for a price can make you almost glad to be dying that old, ugly-fashioned way. Okay, now, suppose... Suppose you're going through with this business. Here's another warning. And this is where my competitors aren't quite honest. Death is not a one-time event. Even the strongest haunted houses get torn down or burned down, and once the null zones are shot, well, listen, you just can't avoid the inevitable. That's what I'm telling you. Don't believe what you hear about redundant safety systems and state-of-the-art protection. Every system fails. No material is shatterproof. And just the fact that null zones take up almost no space is another problem. What good would it be to be here in another 500 years if somebody doesn't recognize you as being important and you get thrown into some future plasmatic shitburner? No, I'm telling you, you don't want that. What you need, and what you deserve, and what you should want to pay for is the kind of system that a pragmatic, nuts-and-bolts kind of guy might accept for himself. Yeah, I mean me. Here, this is my ghost box. Fourth generation, custom-built. I always wear it around my neck. You'd think it was a piece of jewelry if you didn't pay attention. But like I said, I never went into witness protection. And there's some angry boys in jail today that would like me dead. So maybe it happens today. Maybe I get caught inside this box. That's why I use the best system available. Null zones can be made of anything. Wood is nice. My competitors use fancy alloys encased in armor, if only because that sounds good. Some of the cashmere companies use diamond. Well, there's nothing special about gemstones. Nah. What I use and what I offer to each of my clients is a zircon system. That's a mineral, very common but uncommonly tough. The oldest pieces of the earth are zircon crystals. Their original rock melted away or eroded to sand, but they've survived four billion years intact. Zircons are perfect, and their perfection doesn't stop there. Inside this building, down in the basement, is a vault. 
as dark as can be, and cool. My clients and plenty of other dead sorts are living down there. Outside Hollywood, this is the largest community of ghosts you'll see anywhere. For a buy-in fee, you can be with them. It's a mix of personalities, important names, and rich souls. And as long as this company of mine is alive, they're gonna be down in that basement, each one of them rooted into a grain of pure, perfect zircon that's almost too small to see with those eyes of yours. And that's just another piece of what I'm offering. The dead don't weigh much. Almost nothing, in fact. And that's including the zircons and modern support systems and such. A couple years back, I had this thought. <laughs> Again, I'm not creative. Not usually. But I'm smart enough to recognize my little moments of clear thinking for what they are. Opportunities. And for another final fee, I'm willing to let you join a very special little venture. I own a rocket. An Ariane 9. The capsule's built and fueled, and a trajectory's been selected. And once I die, caught up in this little box or not, my orders are that those spirits that want to survive the next hundred thousand years will be packed up and shipped to French Guinea, not far from Devil's Island. And then what could be thousands of ghosts will be sent into the cold, bottomless space, not toward any planet or star, no. In fact, we're going to be steering as far from trouble as we can possibly be. Nobody's going to throw us out with the trash, you see, because we're going to throw ourselves away. What'll we do between the stars? I have no idea. But speaking as a brutish murderer, I have to say, it does make a mind wonder. I mean, if people are doing this kind of trickery with machines and their souls, what are smart old aliens doing? It's something to think about if you're in the mood. The depths of space could be filled with ghosts. It makes sense. Living people are huge and heavy, locked down to their home worlds. But great societies built from a million species could be out there in that ink, in that cold, having a goddamn good time. That's something to think about when you've got the time. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. Who you gonna call? Jean Renault, it turns out. Jean Renault. Holy hell, is that Bob Reed fella a badass storyteller or what? Glad to have him back on the show. Hopefully, more to come in the future. Let's do some story feedback, huh? About a month ago, episode 144, JoniRules.BloggerMax.com by Nick Mamatis. This was the story that placed Joan of Arc in the future and gave us a peek into her blog as she went to parties and filled out annoying surveys and then was summoned by God to lead the French into battle against modern Great Britain. People seemed to like this one, although the story's blog architecture didn't work 100% for everyone. Like the PMS Avenger, for example, who said, I really liked the idea behind the story, but the blog format didn't sit so well with me. 
It just didn't do the plot justice. I had a hard time buying that a military genius inspired by God would be keeping a blog while waging a war. Plus, for me anyway, the jump from her talking about a party to seeing God was a bit much. On the positive side, the narration was awesome. Oh yeah, I should mention that the story was narrated by Naomi Mercer, who is awesome. Gord42 said, I enjoyed Joni Rules. I found the blogging context hid Joan's identity sufficiently well to completely surprise me when God showed up. Joan of Arc was of course in her teens during the military period, so I particularly enjoyed considering how the original Joan might have lived before her vision, and how her teen years were severely altered by her obedience to the voice of God. Unfortunately, the promised pics of a sunset over a city in flames are a dead link. I agree that Naomi Mercer did a great job with the narration. Thank you for saving us from having to hear Norm describe Jen's asshole roommate's asshole boyfriend whipping out his floppy gray dick. Seriously. Yeah, I think that was a pretty good call all around on that, actually. Gray. <laughs> gray, of all the adjectives. So, our kick-ass donor of the week, Mary McLaren. Mary lives in rural Australia, but was born and raised in Southern California. She pays the bills by making espresso coffee, but intends to sell her business one of these days and become a full-time artist. She's married to an Aussie, and they have a nine-year-old drama queen for a kid, who's apparently into the Drabblecast. Hopefully, only into some of them. Mary got into podcast fiction because she works all the time and has little time to read anymore, but even then she's found a special fondness for the spoken story. It's incredible, she says, how many fantastically talented people are out there who are not published. To which I would also add, as the editor of a fiction magazine, that <laughs> there are a lot of fantastically untalented people out there who are also not published. Mary says that the Drabblecast has been a great inspirational push to her artwork. She feels more comfortable painting the crazy now, and she thanks us for helping push her into pursuing the creative urge that she let fade after art school. Hey, Mary, you want to do episode art for us one week? Drop us a line about it. We like having the community contribute to the show. Like this week's episode artist, Abby Hilton. Abby is a regular face around the streets of Drabbleville. She's like a homeless person. But, but she's not homeless. She's a nurse. So she does probably still smell like pee a little bit, but it's, it's not her own pee. And you probably have to sniff really hard. Abby's had drabbles on the show. She's lent her voice. And anyone who's not listening to her kick-ass podcast novel, The Guild of the Cowrie Catchers, should just go stand over there somewhere. Abby's got a Tolkien-esque world set up here, but get this, there aren't any orcs, or goblins, or elves, or halflings, dwarves, or wizards. These are original species we're talking about. So go check it out, cowriecatchers.com. That's C-O-W-R-Y catchers.com. It's free. It gets better every episode. I play a deadly bisexual fox. Obama will give you $8,000, and the Mayans will give us all till 2013 if you just... Go subscribe now. What am I leaving out? Oh yeah, TwitFic winner this week, Muncie, with this little twobble right here. When Bin Laden released his new tape, we felt jaded. We'd seen it before. It turned out to be a sex tape. We knew true terror.
Oh, gross. Gross. Smells like pee. Think you can write a solid story with only 100 characters? Give it a shot. Post it in the TwitFix section of our discussion forums, linked off of Drabblecast.org, and see how people respond. It's booming there, people. I can barely keep up. There's definitely an art to writing a story with only 100 characters. So, that's our show this week. The soul. You have one, right? But what is it? Can you sniff it? Does it make you high? Can it get caught in the floorboards or in Egon's little box? What are the pros and cons of preservation, of having it live on past you? And for that matter, what are the pros and cons of donating to the Drabblecast, of having it preserved? I don't know. Do you enjoy the show? Do you want to contribute to our planetary conquest? Then donate to us, people. You have a soul, right? Don't donate your soul. I don't even think we have an option for that. But subscribe for five bucks a month. You can go to drabblecast.org and do it so easy. Or throw us a one-time donation. It can be three dollars, five dollars, ten, twenty, fifty thousand. Whatever works for you. Clearly, we like to snuggle with our donors. We don't charge for the show. We don't shove annoying ads in your face or ears. This whole shebang runs off of love, man. It's a shitty business model, but so far it's it's been working. Don't hesitate. Support the show. Once we can afford a rocket, we'll send your plasma reification out into space. And that's really what this whole deal is about. Yep, copy, burn, rip this show all you like. As if we could stop you. This mess is produced under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means hey, just don't profit from our content or alter it without running it by us. If you get a second, how about writing us a review on iTunes or Podcast Alley or wherever you pick up the show? We need your help taking over the net. But spread us around. We're the good kind of polyp. So that's our show. See you next week. We've got a Valentine's Day special that you won't want to miss. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, Carl Solomon, that we're with you in Rockland. This place was loaded And noise filled the room like the smoke And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass Words were all slurred when spoke Yes, words were all slurred when slurred